0: 16-year-old Antonio Armstrong Jr., known as AJ to his family and friends, called 911 at 1.40 a.m. on July 29, 2016. He told the dispatcher that he was in his bedroom on the third floor of the home he shared with his parents and younger sister. He was hiding in a closet, he said, because he had just heard gunshots coming from his parents' bedroom on the second floor below him. He said their bedroom door was cracked open and that it was never cracked open like that. The dispatcher asked him about the gunshots he heard, what kind of gun it sounded like. And although AJ said he didn't know what kind of gun it was, he said his dad usually kept a gun in a drawer right next to his bed. Houston police officers responded to the home on Palmetto Street in an affluent area of town in Houston, Texas, and set up a perimeter around the residence. Meanwhile, AJ was still inside and still on the phone with the 911 dispatcher. At the dispatcher's direction, he crept down to the second floor, to his 14-year-old sister Kaira's room. The dispatcher could hear him tell her, I heard gunshots in mom and dad's room. We got to go outside. The police are here. AJ then walked her down to the first floor and unarmed their alarm system. Officers immediately met them at the door and whisked them away into safety while they went inside to clear the house. Inside the kitchen on the first floor, right on the counter in plain sight, was a twenty-two caliber handgun that was warm to the touch. Next to that was a note, which the officers would soon realize was scrawled on a piece of paper from a pad found in one of the kitchen drawers. I have been watching for a long time. Get me, it read. The officers moved up to the second floor, and there, in the master bedroom, was their crime scene. 42-year-old Antonio Armstrong Sr. and his wife, 42-year-old Dawn Armstrong, were lying on their backs in their bed, surrounded by blood. Both had been shot at close range, through pillows that had been placed on their heads. Shell casings from a .22 caliber handgun were found on the floor. Don was deceased, but Antonio was still alive. He was taken away by ambulance as investigators continued searching the rest of the house. It was a peculiar scene. In the study, just outside the master bedroom, they noticed a bullet hole in the ceiling. And when they went up to the third floor, which was a loft where AJ's room was, they saw the other end of that bullet hole on the ground covered by a pile of socks. Also of interest to the investigators was an area of what looked like burned carpeting in the second floor landing. One investigator, Sergeant John Herelica, would later say that by this point, he was already starting to get a feeling that perhaps there hadn't been an intruder. There were no signs of forced entry anywhere in the home, no broken doors or windows, and the alarm system had been set to go off if any had been opened. He told the officers outside the home to separate AJ and his sister. Perhaps, he thought, the killer had come from the inside. This is Jillian, and you are listening to Court Junkie, episode 75. (music) Investigator Jimmy Dodson with the Houston Police Department spoke to reporters who had gathered outside the home. He said Antonio had been taken to a local hospital and was currently in critical condition. He reassured them that they were following up on some leads, but that they couldn't discuss what those leads were.
1: Can you say if it, can you say this is not a murder suicide, or you're leaning towards that, or just you know? Obviously
0: we can't really say anything.
2: It's too preliminary right now. Um, we can't really lean either way. That's why we're trying to chase these leads down, make contact with a couple of people, and, and narrow things down so that we can make that determination. Leads. What are some of the media? What questions are you trying to answer? I can't disclose that right now um, to you. Unfortunately, um, it's things that's got to stay internal for now. But um, once we get more updates, we'll be able to. to get with you guys.
1: Were the kids able to tell you, hey, we think someone did this? I mean, are they
2: able to give any information that's helpful? Uh, again, I can't give you that information right now. Like I said, I don't want to compromise the investigation, so.
0: He reiterated that there were no signs of forced entry. So no sign of forced entry into the house, though?
2: There was not any sign of forced entry at this Any point. Any sign of some type of scuffle in the bedroom or... There was just the no. I mean, everything looked like it was in place. So that's what we're trying to follow up on and, and figure out. So that's where we are right now.
3: We've been told by several people this is a big crime
2: scene. What, what do you mean? What does that mean? It just means that it's it's just got a lot of moving parts to it is all. That's all that that means. It's not necessarily like a large geographic crime scene. It's just a large crime scene in, in that it entails a lot of uh, a lot of evidence collection, a lot of things like that. And so that's why it's so time-consuming.
0: He said some of the family's relatives had come to the house and that they had been interviewed about the background of the family.
2: Any prior domestic situations between this? Absolutely couple? not. This was an outstanding family. Um, the the male in the family was an absolute hardworking breadwinner. Um, he He's... Uh, He's an associate pastor in the area at a church that I'm not sure of. He's he's a great guy, Um, and the family—the mother was uh, apparently a great mother, um, according to family members. Um, And like I said, it was kind of the all-American family, and that's why we're trying to do our best to uh, get down to what's going on in this household and figure out um, you know who our suspects are, so we can uh, we can button this up for people. Okay, but again, you can't confirm that this was a murder suicide or not. I can't. I don't know at this time. Once I figure that out, I'll let y'all know.
0: After investigator Dodson walked away. One of the reporters could be heard saying, it's weird. Back at the police station, AJ was read his rights and then questioned by Sergeant Kenneth Dagnall and investigator Jimmy Dodson. By this time, it was just after 7.45 in the morning. The first few questions were about the Armstrong's family dynamics. AJ told the officers that he and his father were close and that he and his siblings had some issues with their mom, but that it was nothing big, just family stuff. In addition to AJ and his 14-year-old sister, Kara, there was a third sibling too, their older adopted brother named Josh. Josh was 20 years old and no longer lived in the Armstrong house, although he did live nearby. AJ said that Josh and his mom were like identical people. AJ was then asked about what he saw and heard. He told the officers that he hadn't been feeling well that day and that he, his parents, and his sister were all in the house by 9 p.m. At around 1 or 2 a.m., he said he heard his parents' door open, which would typically mean that one of them was getting up to get a snack. So he went downstairs to the second floor so he could ask whichever one it was for some medicine. That's when he heard two gunshots and saw a man wearing a mask running away. He turned around and ran back upstairs to hide in his closet and call 911. He said his dad owned a gun, but that he himself had only used it once at a gun range when he was eight years old. Sergeant Dagnall asked him about that bullet hole in the ceiling of the study that matched a hole on the floor of AJ's room. AJ asked, there's a bullet hole in the ceiling? Sergeant Dagnall said yes, that it looked like it was a fresh bullet hole. And AJ then told him that he had touched the gun a few weeks prior. He said he had been playing around with it and that he had laid a pillow and blanket over it to stop the bullet when he fired, but that instead it shot through the pillow and blanket and into the floor. But AJ swore that he never touched the gun the night before. Sergeant Dagnall wasn't believing him and asked how an intruder would have had time to leave the gun on the kitchen counter, write a note, and then get out before police arrived. AJ agreed that it was odd and said he didn't understand how the intruder could have gotten out or how he could have even gotten into the house for that matter. Sergeant Dagnall then asked about a statement AJ had made on the 911 call, how at one point he had said, It's all my fault. AJ said that what he had meant was that he had felt guilty for not doing anything about the intruder when he saw him. But again, the investigators didn't believe him. Investigator Dodson insisted that no one came into the home that night and then pointed to AJ's calm demeanor, even though his mother was dead and his father was in critical condition. AJ responded that he had been crying earlier, but that his brother Josh had calmed him down. Regarding the burn mark on the second floor stairway, AJ said that it was something that he and his dad had argued about, that he had been playing with a match a few days earlier and that the carpet had caught on fire. He said he had lied to his dad at first, but then they had talked about it and worked it out. That when they do have problems, they always sit down and solve them. Sergeant Dagnall asked AJ if they would find any gunshot residue on his hands and clothes. And AJ said, no, there will be no gunpowder. Nothing like that will come back on me. I had nothing to do with this, he said. He said his brother Josh had even told him that his story didn't make any sense. He told them that he understands how it looks like it was him, but that it wasn't. But despite his denials, AJ was arrested and charged with murder. But because he was only 16 years old at the time, he was taken to Harris County Juvenile and his identity was kept a secret from the media. Not long after AJ's arrest, Antonio Sr. passed away from his injuries. It didn't take long for news of the murders to spread throughout the community. Antonio and Don Armstrong were well-liked. And as Investigator Dodson said earlier when talking to reporters, the Armstrong family really was known as an all-American family. Antonio was a former NFL player. He had played for the Miami Dolphins in 1995 after playing for Texas A&M in college. And now he was a fitness instructor, and he and Don owned a few gyms in the Houston area, one being first-class training in Bel Air. Antonio was also a motivational speaker and an associate pastor at his mother's church. A makeshift memorial was set up at the Armstrong's gym with flowers and signs that read, Antonio Armstrong and family, our hearts and prayers are with you. Since Antonio had succumbed to his injuries, AJ's charges were upgraded to capital murder. In Texas, capital murder is reserved for certain types of homicides, such as the killing of more than one person at the same time. But nearly everyone who knew AJ and who knew the Armstrong family were standing behind him. At his first hearing, AJ stood in front of the court wearing a green prison-issued jumpsuit. The judge told him he was facing some very serious charges. Surrounding AJ were at least a dozen family members, including Antonio's mother, who was there to show her support. AJ's attorney, Rick Toto, spoke to reporters afterwards. He's a great kid from a good family. There's absolutely no motive. It doesn't make sense, he said. Not long after the hearing, a Facebook page run by the family was started, a page that asked the community to join them in trying to free AJ. A week after Antonio and Don were killed, a funeral was held for them, and AJ was allowed to attend. Close to 3,000 people showed up for the service. AJ was denied bail and remained in custody at the juvenile detention center. But in March 2017, eight months later, a judge decided that AJ would stand trial as an adult. His name was released to the public. He was transferred to the Harris County Jail. And he was now facing life in prison with the possibility of parole after 40 years if convicted. The death penalty wasn't applicable because he had been a juvenile at the time the murders occurred. According to the order, the court took many factors into consideration when making the decision to try him as an adult. Some of the testimony that had been presented by the prosecution had to do with AJ's prior behavior A.J. had reportedly been removed from his private school due to poor grades and was enrolled in a public school as a result. There, he didn't make the starting roster for football as he had at his private school. He had also gotten into trouble with his parents for smoking marijuana. And just prior to their deaths, Antonio and Don had reportedly taken away his car and cell phone. The judge wrote that there was probable cause to believe he had committed the crime and quote respondent appears to have planned aspects of this crime in practicing with the handgun used to kill his parents in his bedroom through a pillow and comforter prior to committing the murders. The respondent used an accelerant to start a fire outside his parents bedroom on the second floor landing, but then stated it was accidental. The respondent scrawled and left a note on the kitchen counter with the handgun used to kill his parents in an apparent effort to direct what he knew would be a police investigation of their deaths. The respondent placed a hushed 911 call stating he heard gunshots in his parents' bedroom after staging the handgun and note in the kitchen of his residence. The judge also noted that in AJ's room, numerous school ID cards belonging to other students were found. ID cards that could be used as debit cards on campus. In April 2017, one month later, AJ was released on bond. He appeared in court again the following day to hear the conditions of his release. He would be on house arrest, would have to wear a GPS ankle monitor, and would undergo random drug testing. After the hearing, his attorney again spoke to reporters.
3: AJ grateful to be out. Um, he understands the seriousness of the situation. Um, he's very grateful that the judge allowed him to be out. Obviously, it's his first day back out of custody for almost nine months. He's spending time with his family, um, and we're getting ready to prepare his defense.
0: As the trial approached in June 2018, AJ's attorneys filed a motion to have the case completely dismissed against their client. They claimed that there was a witness who had come forward in 2016. And that prosecutors were just now giving the defense an audio tape of the interview, a day before the trial was potentially scheduled to begin. AJ's attorneys said that they were initially told that this particular lead was investigated and that it wasn't credible, that the investigation was complete, nothing more to see. But now, 18 months later, they were handing over an audio tape from that interview, an audio tape that they had never told the defense existed. In 2016, five months after Antonio and Don were killed, the witness, a family friend of the Armstrongs, named Maxine Adams, had told police that Antonio had been involved in a prostitution ring. According to the defense's motion, Maxine told police that there were at least five people in the ring, including Antonio. She said she had hired a private investigator to look into her husband's involvement in the ring, and she gave the police the names and phone numbers of the people she said were involved. She also said that Antonio had received death threats in the months prior to the murders, and that he had recently changed his life insurance policy because he was afraid something would happen to him. AJ's attorneys said the fact that prosecutors kept this from them for so long violated their client's constitutional right to a fair trial. The Harris County District Attorney responded that the remedy for the situation would be to delay the trial to give the defense team more time to look into the allegations as opposed to outright dismissing the case. A hearing was held and Maxine Adams testified under oath. She said she told police she believed there was a connection between the murders and the prostitution ring, but she had no evidence to prove it aside from some phone records she had originally shown to police but that she no longer had. She also couldn't recall who exactly had told her about the death threats or that Antonio had changed his life insurance. State District Judge Kelly Johnson denied the motion to dismiss, but rescheduled the trial for the following year. Before his trial began, AJ spoke with a reporter from a local news station. With him were his attorneys and his grandparents from both sides. Through tears, AJ maintained his innocence, saying that there was somebody else in the house that night. He said that it's been really hard to not have his parents anymore, and then to be accused of something of this magnitude. It just makes everything so much worse, he said. AJ's trial started in April of 2019. He was now 19 years old. Harris County District Attorney John Brewer told the jury that on the night of July 28th, 2016, the Armstrongs had set their alarm at 9.52 p.m. It was set to the stay setting, which means the door and windows were monitored in case of a break-in. The setting allows for movement inside the house, but will set the alarm off if anyone from the outside comes in. He said inside the home that night were Don and Antonio in their bedroom on the second floor, their 14-year-old daughter, Kaira, whose bedroom was on the opposite end of the second floor, and AJ, whose bedroom was on the third floor. He said the alarm was set and all the doors and windows on the first floor were closed, locked, and monitored. The windows on the second floor weren't monitored by the alarm, but are 13 to 14 feet in the air and they were closed and locked. In AJ's room on the third floor, the windows were closed with the screens on. That was the safety bubble that had been set up by the Armstrongs when they went to bed that night, Brewer said. He then described the murder scene. Dawn was on the left side of the bed. She was shot twice in the head while she laid there safe and sound and healthy. Quote, she probably never knew it was her son who killed her. Next to her, on the right side of the bed, lay her husband, Antonio. He was shot once in the head. Brewer told the jury that the gun that was used to kill Don and Antonio came from inside the house. It was, in fact, Antonio's gun. He said the alarm never went off that night, but that it did what it was supposed to. It protected them from things outside the house coming in. At 1:40 a.m., AJ called 911 and told them that he had heard gunshots in his parents' room and that he was hiding in the closet. The alarm hadn't gone off.
4: Police arrived minutes later, and they set up a perimeter around the house. And the police started to learn some things immediately about the house. And you can imagine how this how this situation was. Uh, The police have people inside of a house. uh, Shots have been fired. And it's a, from their perspective, it's, a, it's possibly a very dangerous situation for everybody. Maybe the people inside of the house, and certainly the officers going into a house where they think there may be a firearm. And But what they learn as they get there is um, the front door is still locked. And they're kind of looking around for forced entry. Is this a, a home invasion? Is this a burglary? Is this a robbery? What is this? And there is none. See, the windows don't seem to be broken, screens are on, front door's locked, we can't get in. In fact, what they find out is, because they're, they're talking to the 911 operator who's talking to the defendant, and the 911 operator's giving them information. And so what they find out is, they want the kids to come out. They want the defendant to come out, and they find out about his sister, and they want the sister to come out, too because they don't know what's happened at this point. They want them to be safe. But they can't get into the house because the doors are locked and the alarm system's on. And so what has to happen before the police can go in is the defendant has to come down and the defendant has to disarm the system, which he does. And the police, he comes to the front door with the sister and he unlocks it and the police get him out and they go in. And what the police find when they go in, of course, they find Don, who is now dead. And they find Antonio Sr., who is fighting for his life in the bed. But they search the house, and they find nobody.
0: He said they looked at the windows, and everything seemed to be closed and perfectly in place. And that's when they started realizing that the killer didn't come from outside the house.
4: Well, another thing that they find is, is they find the gun on the left behind by the killer. It doesn't necessarily make sense to them because they're not used to the killer being within. They're used to somebody coming in. So, the killer left the gun, and it's on the kitchen counter, and it's with a little note that's kind of scribbled. Looked like somebody tried to do a. I'm I'm four years old, and I I write like this. I've been watching you for a long time. Somebody, the police are thinking somebody that came in and committed a murder. Left the gun and left a note to scare the people that he just killed? This doesn't make any sense.
0: He described how the officers went upstairs and discovered Antonio and Don, who both had pillows over their heads.
4: That really means something. You're a murderer and puts pillows on somebody's heads. Maybe you don't want to see what you did.
0: He said one of the senior officers told the other officers to separate the kids, because it was all starting to make sense to him.
4: So the police officer starts to figure it out and he puts it together. And then he starts thinking about the hole in the ceiling and the windows being locked from the inside and the screens being on and the alarm system having to be turned off. And quickly, The officer focuses on the killer.
0: He said investigators collected evidence and then the long process of testing it began. But, he said, we're looking for DNA and fingerprints of a killer who lives in the house. You should expect to find his fingerprints and DNA. He told the jury that evidence can be wiped down and thrown out. And that the person who controlled all the evidence in the house before the police got there was the defendant's. He said investigators also looked at the alarm system. Although the motion detectors weren't set to go off, they could still detect motion. He said the house had two, one that covered the downstairs, including the entrance to the front door and garage door, and one that covers the second floor, just outside the master bedroom. He said not only does the alarm tell us that the killer came from inside the house, but it tells us that the killer came from upstairs. He said they were able to determine that at 1.09 a.m., the upstairs motion detector went off. He said that's important because none of the doors were opened, none of the windows were opened, and the downstairs motion detector didn't go off at that time. He said nobody came from the first floor up. The motion occurred on the second floor. So when A.J. came down from his room and got to the stairwell, The motion detector caught him, he said. Then, 16 minutes later, at 1.25 a.m., the downstairs motion detector went off. No doors or windows were opened then either. He said the killer had walked from the second story down to the first story. Remember where the gun was left, he asked? In the kitchen, on the first floor. He said the 911 call was made at 1.40 a.m., so what happened between one hundred nine and 1.40 when the defendant said he heard shots, he asked? That's a long time to write a note, put a gun downstairs, change clothes, and do whatever you need to do.
4: The scene here tells the story. At 9.52, the alarm was told by somebody figuratively, we're home and we're safe your job to protect us from somebody outside coming in and hurting us and um, when the Armstrongs went to bed that night uh, I'm sure they felt comfortable the kids were home the alarm was on I'm sure never in their wildest dreams did they they imagine that the alarm couldn't protect them because it Going to be killed by their own child.
0: In his opening statement, AJ's attorney, Rick DeToto, began by saying that within minutes of arriving at the Armstrong home, the Houston Police Department had already made up their minds about who their suspect was.
3: The evidence is going to show you that an officer testified in a previous hearing that within 11 minutes, Within 11 minutes of going into that house, before any evidence was processed, before they knew anything about the crime scene, as far as forensics, before anything, they made up their mind, he did it. 11 minutes.
0: He said that means they created a confirmation bias immediately in a high-profile murder case. They knew nothing about the alarm system at that time, nothing about the physical evidence in the house, and nothing about scientific testing. They formed the opinion without all the relevant information and then shaped the case to fit that opinion. He said the prosecutor blew off the fingerprint evidence in his opening statement, saying that they didn't expect to find any. But what he didn't tell you, he said, was that none of AJ's fingerprints were on the weapon nor were his fingerprints found on the shells. He said, in fact, AJ's fingerprints weren't on anything related to that gun. Not on the slide, not on the magazine, on the handle, nothing. There was also none of AJ's DNA on anything related to the gun. Not on the bullets, on the magazine, on the slide, nothing. Toto then told the jury what gunshot residue is. He said that when someone fires a weapon, the gas expands and it gets on your clothes, arms, hands, hair, everywhere. There was no gunshot residue on AJ, not on his body and not on his clothes. Sure, he said, as the prosecutor had stated, AJ could have wiped it down and washed his hands. But at a pretrial hearing, Sergeant Dagnall had testified that he looked at all of the sinks in the house and that they were bone dry there was no indication anywhere in that house that A.J. ever washed his hands. And most importantly, he said, the prosecution says that Don and Antonio were shot at close range, but A.J. didn't have any blood on him, none, not anywhere on him nor on his clothes. And Houston PD had control over the house, he said. They could have searched anywhere and tested any clothes, If they had found blood from his parents in his room, for example, the case would be a slam dunk, but they didn't. He told the jury that there was a lot of reasonable doubt in this case. He said that they would be hearing from two witnesses who had received similar notes as the one left at the murder scene after AJ had already been arrested. He said there was something else that was never looked into, too, that would also be relevant to the case. Shortly after Antonio and Don passed away, their gym was broken into. The surveillance video shows two men wearing hoodies, smashing the window, and then rummaging around inside, looking for something. Why is that important, he asked? Because AJ told the police that there was a masked man in the house. Reasonable doubt, he said. He told the jury that they'll hear about AJ's demeanor on the day of the offense in which prosecutors claim he executed his parents in cold blood. He said that AJ's girlfriend will say that AJ was on the phone with her that night and that he was normal and goofing around. AJ and his girlfriend continued to text each other up until about 30 to 45 minutes before he supposedly executed his parents. And the text messages were typical teenage goofy text messages between boyfriend and girlfriend. Is that demeanor consistent with someone who just 30 minutes later would execute his parents, he asked. That's reasonable doubts. He told the jury that they would be hearing a lot about the Armstrong's alarm system, but that the evidence will show that there were holes in that system and that the reporting from it wasn't accurate. Investigators also failed to get the records in time, and most of the records had been destroyed by the alarm company. The most important thing to remember, he told them, is about access to that house. He said there was a keypad to the garage door, a keypad whose code the Armstrongs gave out to a lot of people. With that code, you could then get into the door that enters the house from the garage. That door was routinely unlocked. You're going to hear about a lot of people who had access to it, he said. But he told them that they would hear about one person in particular. AJ's older brother, Josh.
3: Josh is AJ's brother. And you're going to hear evidence that for the past three years, he's been in and out of a psychiatric facility. You're going to hear evidence that he's suicidal. You're going to hear evidence that he's homicidal. You're going to hear evidence that he's catatonic. You're going to hear evidence that he has a woman in his head that he's trying to kill. You're going to hear evidence from family members that have lived with him over the past three years. And they're going to tell you about Josh's demeanor and his actions and what they do to protect himself. Josh had access to the house just like AJ did. In fact, Josh showed up at the scene the night this happened. In fact... The investigators interviewed him, well, for about three or four minutes. They initially thought thought something was going on with him because they bagged his hands. But what they didn't know was Josh's psychiatric history that was coming. They didn't know that Josh lived less than two minutes away from the house. The evidence is going to show you that you can run from Josh's apartment to the Armstrong's in less than a minute. Outside of that stuff, the two most important things I think the evidence is going to show you about Josh is that, number one, when asked by a Houston Police Department officer where he was at the time of the murders, he refused to answer. He refused to answer.
0: But, he said, one of the biggest suspicions about Josh is that he didn't go visit his dad in the hospital while his dad was fighting for his life.
3: His dad was just shot, fighting for him. He did not come to the hospital. Why?
0: Reasonable doubt, he said again. He said there was a lot of evidence that the Houston police didn't bother to look at and people they didn't bother to interview.
3: They're accusing this young man of capital murder and they're still trying to interview people about this case. Confirmation bias and reasonable doubt is weed throughout this whole case.
0: The state began their case by calling the initial responding officers to the stand. Sergeant John Herelica testified that he initially thought it was a domestic violence situation, but when he didn't find a gun in their bed, he thought that either A.J. or his sister were responsible. He said his gut told him that it was going to be A.J. He told the other officers to separate the siblings, and both were handcuffed with bags placed over their hands to protect any possible gunshot residue. He described Keira as looking shocked and scared, but AJ was just normal and kind of calm. On cross-examination, DeToto asked him how many people he told at the scene that he thought AJ was a suspect, and he estimated about five. AJ's 911 call was played for the jury. There were many parts that were difficult to hear, and so the prosecution provided a transcript of what they said they thought he was saying, although they admitted that some parts might not be exactly what was said. The call starts with AJ giving the dispatcher his name and saying that he heard gunshots coming from his parents' bedroom. When asked if any medical attention is needed, he says, I, I heard gunshots, so I don't really know, because I, in your parents' bedroom, the dispatcher asks, Yes, and their door is cracked open, and it's never cracked open. He has asked if it sounded like a handgun, a rifle, or a shotgun, and he responds, I'm not good with guns, but I, I guess like a, I don't know, um, 15 or something like that. I know my dad has a gun underneath the, God, where does he keep his gun? Um, I think he keeps it in the drawer right next to his bed. AJ says he's in his bedroom on the third floor hiding in a closet, and that his little sister is downstairs. Four minutes into the call, AJ says, how'd you get into our house? At another point in the call, he says, it's all my fault. He tells the dispatcher that he sees lights outside of his house and asks what he should do. The dispatcher asks if there's anyone on the first level, and he says no, it's just their living room and kitchen. He's instructed to wake up his sister, which he can be heard doing while still on the phone. Quote, I heard gunshots in mom and dad's room. We got to go outside. The police are here. I called 911. I'm the one that I'm the one that called. The call then ended at 156 a.m. It lasted for a total of 12 minutes. On cross-examination, the defense asked the officer who transcribed the call if they may have gotten the phrase, how'd you get into our house? Wrong. If he could have instead said, how'd he get into our house? And he agreed that was possible. After playing the 911 call for the jury, the state then called its next witness, crime scene investigator Jimmy James with the Houston Police Department. The photos and videos that Officer James took from the murder scene were displayed for the jury. As the video footage panned over Dawn's body lying deceased in her bed, AJ started crying at the defense table. His attorneys consoled him, and he put his head down into his hands. Officer James told the jury that he was very thorough in his crime scene documentation, but on cross-examination, he was asked, there's no fingerprints in this case involving the keypad, right? And he agreed. Investigator Jimmy Dodson testified about his interview with AJ shortly after the murders. He called AJ calm and emotionless. He said he conducted several interviews that night at the scene, including with Kara, Josh, and other relatives who had gathered there. When asked why he didn't consider any of the other family members like Josh to be suspects, he said that he had no reason to believe that Josh had anything to do with it. He said Josh was standoffish and emotional. He was upset because he wanted to get to his brother and sister. But he said he was certain that Josh wasn't in the house at the time the murders occurred. And he believes they got the right person. Nothing will change my mind on that, he said. Sergeant Kenneth Dagnall was also in the interview with AJ and Investigator Dodson. Prosecutors played the interrogation video from that interview. During those near 60 minutes, AJ repeatedly denies being the killer. You have to understand, he says, I would never try and kill my parents or get someone to kill my parents. After the interview was played in court, Prosecutor Brewer asked Sergeant Dagnall what he thought after the interview was over, that he killed his parents, he replied. He also testified that he interviewed Josh's girlfriend, after finding out that A.J.'s defense team was going to try and pin the murders on him. And after talking to her, he said he had no reason to doubt that A.J. was their main suspect. On cross-examination, A.J.'s attorneys asked numerous questions about the Armstrong's alarm system and the testing that Sergeant Dagnall said he did on it. They were trying to argue the point that he had tested the system by just opening and closing the doors and windows, and that the actual alarm company never even tested the unit. Sergeant Dagnall was then asked about whether he thought access to the home from the garage door was important, and he said no. Another recording was played in court, this time from AJ's interview with the magistrate judge shortly after the murders. The judge read him his rights, and shortly after, AJ asked, No one's told me anything, so I'm really out of the loop. So, like, how's my dad doing? Deborah Lynn was an arson expert the state called in to testify. As you'll recall, AJ had said he had burned the carpet by playing with matches in the days prior to the murders, and that he and his dad had initially argued over that. Lynn testified that she analyzed a piece of the carpet, along with a match and a bottle of rubbing alcohol that was found in AJ's room. She said gasoline was detected on the carpet and that gasoline and rubbing alcohol were both found inside the bottle. On cross-examination, she said she has no idea when the carpet was burned. Prosecutors also called Josh's former girlfriend, Hannah, to the stand. Hannah testified that she and Josh were living together at the time of the murders in 2016. They lived just a couple streets away from the Armstrong's house. On the night of the murders, Hannah said Josh and his cousin Trenton were at home playing video games. She went to sleep at about 10 p.m. and recalled Josh waking her up at 2 a.m., yelling that AJ had called and said something about someone being in the Armstrong's house. He and Trenton ran out of their apartment, and when she talked to him on the phone a few minutes later, he told her that someone had shot his parents and that they were gone. Hannah said she then called 911. Forensic experts who analyzed DNA and fingerprints in the case were also called to testify. No DNA was found on the gun or on the magazine, but there was DNA found on the gun's case. That DNA did not match AJ. A latent print examiner testified that no fingerprints were detected on the gun, magazines, notepad found in the kitchen drawer, pen that was used to write the note, the note itself, or the gun case. There were fingerprints found inside a box of bullets, but the prints weren't strong enough to make any sort of determinations. As for gunshot residue, Jason Schroeder from the Harris County Forensic Science Center testified that there was no gunshot residue found on AJ, Kara, or Josh. But he stressed that just because there wasn't any, doesn't mean that they weren't near a gunshot. There could be a number of reasons for its absence. Stephen Hill, AJ's former football coach from his former school, Kincaid, called AJ a standout and said that he was very special to him. He had also grown close to Antonio over the years. When asked about what he saw with AJ's interactions with his parents, he said Don was always harder on him than Antonio and that he never saw him argue with his father. He testified that Antonio had decided to pull A.J. from Kincaid after he was finished with his junior year in 2016. A.J. was instead going to attend a public school that following fall, Lamar High School, something prosecutors theorized A.J. was unhappy about. On cross-examination, Hill was pressed on why A.J. was leaving Kincaid for Lamar, He said Antonio had texted him and told him that AJ had been kicked out for bad grades. At that time, Hill himself was no longer working at Kincaid, but at another school, St. Pius X High School. He said after AJ left Kincaid, AJ asked him if he could play for him at St. Pius X and if he could get him some sort of financial help in order to do so. But AJ's parents wouldn't let him. Andrew Martier was the former headmaster at the Kincaid school. He testified that AJ was placed on academic probation during the 2015-2016 school year and that he wasn't offered reenrollment at the end of the semester. He said AJ's grades weren't sufficient enough. At some point, he said he had heard that Keira wasn't going to be returning to the school either due to financial reasons. On cross-examination, Martier said that both AJ and Keira were receiving financial aid. The state then focused their attention on AJ's relationship with his parents leading up to the murders. They called Nathan Gates, an investigator with the Harris County DA's office to the stand to testify about text messages and emails that were recovered from AJ's cell phone and iPad. The messages he extracted were from October 2015 to July 2016, when the murders occurred. The text messages painted the story of a teenager who had started doing poorly in school and parents who were apparently fed up with it. In October 2015, Don texted her son, you can't start slacking, you worked too hard. In April of 2016, Antonio wrote him, AJ, I am sick of getting reports about silly crap you're doing. Keep screwing up and doing silly things like speeding through the park, and I'm trading your car in for one that fits your maturity. Last warning. In May 2016, Don texted both AJ and Antonio about AJ smoking marijuana in the house. In an email from June 2nd, 2016, Don forwarded emails she had received from AJ's teachers to AJ saying that he hadn't turned in assignments and that he had missed basketball practice. You flat out lied to me, she wrote, flat out lied. You did not go to basketball practice. Another message from Don to AJ and Antonio read, he is a bold-faced liar like I have never seen before. Then on June 3rd, eight weeks prior to their deaths, Antonio wrote, we have paid thousands in tutors. And as I figured, it was a waste of time. You could have made these grades on your own. AJ wrote them back saying, quote, I'm not even going to try and say sorry for everything because right now I know my word doesn't mean anything to you guys. I put myself in the absolute worst possible position with not only school, but with the way you guys think about me. I know that I have gone to another level with my actions. And know I need a major life change right now. To that, Don responded, quote, we gave you all and the best we had. We wanted the best for you. We provided the best education, bought you a great car to celebrate you. We tried to be open with you and what was important to you. And all you do is lie to us, scheme behind our backs, choose to piss on all we tried to do, beyond disappointed. I will never understand why you are a liar and do not work hard in school. You don't want to be right or do good. I am so heartbroken, but it is what it is. Prosecutors also pointed out text messages that showed that at the time of the murders, AJ had been grounded and that his car had been taken away from him. On the night of the murders, Keira texted AJ at about 8 p.m. and asked if he could pick her up. AJ responded that he can't because mom said he can't drive. Kayra then got permission for him to pick her up and so he did. Then prosecutors focused on a search that was made on the iPad found in AJ's room. On the morning of July 27th, two days before the murders, someone who was logged into AJ's Apple ID conducted a web search for quote, how to rig a car so that it explodes when it's turned on. On cross-examination, the defense brought up other text messages during that same time frame that were loving and positive. On the night of the murders, AJ had been texting with his girlfriend. He had also texted his brother Josh and asked if he could borrow his car for an upcoming trip he was planning on taking. The state also called two employees from the alarm company, both of whom testified that the Armstrong's alarm system seemed to be working properly the night of the murders. But on cross-examination, one of the employees admitted that the alarm system could be compromised by intruders. He also said that he couldn't be sure if the system had been installed properly or if the motion sensors had ever been tested. He also acknowledged that motion detectors could be avoided by types of clothing. Simply put, the sensors pick up body heat, and if you're covered up, the motion sensors may not detect that. Anna Lopez, a forensic pathologist, testified about the causes of death. She said Don died instantly after having been shot twice in the head, once behind the right ear and another through the right ear. Antonio had been shot once in the head. Part of the bullet left the skull, but part went into his brain. She said the shots were fired from at least two and a half to three feet away. AJ openly cried at the defense table while listening to this testimony. And afterwards, the state then rested their case. The defense called Jim Parker, an electronic security expert, to the stand to testify about his findings from the Armstrong's security system His opinion, after visiting the home numerous times and testing the system himself, was that the system they had was not reliable. For example, he said it was possible that someone could have entered the house through the garage door without it ever registering in the system. He also had doubts that it was installed properly. On cross-examination, prosecutor John Brewer pointed out to the jury that Parker was paid nearly $50,000 for his work on the case. A woman named Joanna Oaks testified next. She said that she knew Antonio from having been a client of his at one of his gyms. She said she eventually started dating another trainer there named Tony Hood and that together she and Tony ended up leaving Antonio's gym to start their own. Their gym opened up nearby. Joanna told the jury that in June 2016, about a month before the murders, Tony had received a note telling him to stop pursuing the business. She said after the murders, she too found a note. This one was on the windshield of her car. She said the note read, we are watching you, and that she was very afraid. Then later, she said there was another note. This one was written in dust at the new gym she had opened up with Tony that also said, we are watching you. She said she had no idea what the messages meant. AJ's girlfriend, Kate Ober, took the stand next. She told the court that she and AJ had been dating for about four and a half years and she was adamant that AJ was not capable of murder. She told the court that AJ's relationship with his parents was really good. She never saw any problems between them and AJ's demeanor was completely normal on the day of the murders. She told the court that they had been texting all night up until almost midnight She said he was his normal, happy, goofy self and that they had been dealing with some typical teenage drama. There was a boy at school named Blake who had said some things about her that weren't true. And AJ had even gone to ask his dad for advice at one point. At around 9 p.m., she and AJ spoke on the phone. Kate testified that Josh Armstrong had lived in the Armstrong's home in the same room as AJ, until about two weeks prior to the murders. On cross-examination, prosecutors questioned Kate further about AJ's relationship with his parents. They brought up the fact that AJ and his parents had often argued about his marijuana usage, his spending of money, and his lying. But Kate maintained that just because you fight with your parents doesn't mean your relationship with them is terrible. She said they were AJ's best friends. Prosecutors also brought out text messages between Kate and AJ, where they would argue about AJ's marijuana usage and lies. In one exchange, after he had been arrested, Kate confronted him about how he had lied to her, about why he had left Kincaid. She wrote that she feels like he always lies to her. AJ's sister, Kera also testified on his behalf. She, too, said that AJ and her parents had a normal relationship, and she, too, said that he was acting like his normal, happy, and goofy self on the day of the murders. She said she knew about AJ's failing grades at Kincaid, but said he was excited about starting at his new school. As for the night of July 28th, she said that she went to bed around 11 p.m., and that the next thing she remembers is AJ waking her up and telling her that she needed to go downstairs with him. She said she was half asleep at the time. When they got outside, she and AJ were separated, and she was put into a police car while her hands were bagged and tested for gunshot residue. She recalled seeing her brother Josh arriving at the house, and she said he smelled like weed and was acting high. She told the jury that there were numerous people who would come over to their house and who would enter and exit through the garage. She said anyone and everyone her parents knew used to come over and would use their keypad. She also said she knew about problems with their alarm system. She said sometimes the alarm would set when a door was still open or that sometimes it would go off randomly. It was really finicky, she said. When asked more about her brother, Josh, She said that when he came back from college in May, he was different. He was distant and acted like the black sheep of the family. She said he acted like Antonio and Don loved her and AJ more than him because he was adopted. She said Josh was doing a lot of drugs and would talk to himself in the restroom for hours. He would even hear demons and at one point thought he was Satan. She said he also didn't seem to care about his appearance anymore. After the murders, Josh started to become violent. He was doing more drugs and was hearing voices in his head. At one point, he even tried to burn down their grandma's house. One of AJ's aunts, Renee Winston, testified that she was very close to the Armstrong kids and that AJ was very close with his dad. Renee said she used to work at the gym with Antonio And she told the court how the gym was broken into just 12 days after the murders. She said it had never been broken into before. The surveillance video from that break-in was played in court. Two men wearing hooded sweatshirts can be seen breaking the glass and ducking around inside. They appear to be searching for something. They then steal the computer at the front desk and walk out. AJ was in jail at the time. As part of their rebuttal case, prosecutors called AJ's grandmother, Kay Winston, to the stand. She was asked about something she told detectives on the night of the shootings. She said she told them that if AJ had done it, it had to be drug-related. Kay agreed that she did say that, but on cross-examination, she told the jury that she knows he didn't do it. She also testified that Josh had dropped her off at the hospital the next day to see Antonio, but that he never went to see him himself. In their closing arguments, AJ's attorney said the crux of the state's case focuses entirely on the alarm system, and that the company's employees even admitted that the system could be compromised. They said the employees spoke in generalities and about how the system should work, but that they never tested it themselves and couldn't say for sure that it had been installed properly. They pointed out that according to AJ's girlfriend, Kate's testimony, AJ went to his dad that night for advice and that the state would have you believe that somewhere within an hour of that, he then went and killed his parents. They said that doesn't stand to reason and that the state's position is absurd. They pointed out that there was never any testimony about AJ being upset with his parents at all that day or the day before because it doesn't exist. They said the majority of Keira's testimony is undisputed, and they said she even told police the night of the murders that the alarm system hadn't been working properly. AJ's attorney, Rick Detoto acknowledged that AJ was not a perfect kid, but that he was going through normal 16-year-old stuff. He said the state tried very hard to come up with a motive, but that they failed. And he again reiterated that the responding officers had made up their minds in minutes. We don't convict people on hunches or gut feelings, he said. There is no DNA, no gunshot residue, no fingerprints, no contact DNA, no ballistics, no shell casings, and no real witness interviews, he said. Reasonable doubts. He brought up Officer James's testimony and how investigators never did anything with the keypad on the garage. He said everyone went into the house that way, family, friends, neighbors. How is it not important to see if someone gained entry through that way? He said they also never went around the neighborhood looking for surveillance cameras. What quicker way to prove his innocence or guilt, he asked. But it doesn't fit into their theory, and so they didn't care. He held up a photo of Josh Armstrong leaning against a police car. His eyes closed the night of the incident. Was Josh a suspect? No, not according to anybody involved in this case. They only interviewed him for four minutes and prosecutors haven't interviewed him since.
3: Mr. Brewer, have you interviewed Josh Armstrong since that four minute interview? State of Texas. You have the burden of proof in this case, in a capital murder, where you're trying to send my client to prison for the rest of his life. Where is Josh? They knew a long time ago. That's where we were headed. Where is Josh? At least go interview him. At least have Dagnall. He's right there. Go talk to Josh. Find out what his situation is. What is his story? Was he involved? Was he not involved? Where was he? Who was he with? We'll never know because they made that decision. And up until right now, whatever time it is, 1224, they have yet to interview Josh again or make any attempt to figure out what happened. That's reasonable doubt because they don't want to know.
0: He then listed off all the reasons why Josh likely committed the crimes.
3: Outside of Josh being a suspect, let's talk about Josh. He lived minutes away. He had complete access to the house. He could go through the door, the garage door, and had a key. Kavar said he was the back, he thought he was the black sheep of the family, upset with his parents, felt AJ and Kavar were treated better. Behavior changed when he came back from school. Hygiene was not there, he was distant, had a demon in his head. The devil talked to himself, locked himself in the bathroom for hours, walked in and out of a church, a door at church multiple times, violent, angry, constantly smoking weed. Objection outside the Nobody ever said before. Ladies and gentlemen,
0: again, remember what the lawyers say is not evidence.
3: Please
2: proceed.
3: Demonic, split personality. Tried to burn down grandma's house. Probably violent. You define that as violent. Tried to burn down grandma's house. Refused to tell CSU James where he was at the time of the shooting. And something that speaks louder to me I could be wrong, not often right. Josh Armstrong never went to the hospital to check on his
0: He asked where Josh's cousin Trenton is, the one his girlfriend Hannah testified was with them the night of the murders. He said maybe Trenton could give an alibi for Josh, but investigators or prosecutors never spoke with him. Why not just put him on the stand, he asked. DeToto then focused on the gym break-in and those mysterious notes left for Joanna Oaks and her boyfriend, Tony Hood. Something is going on outside of the state's theory, he said.
3: So at this point, we know AJ is in custody, masked men broke into the gym. There's two notes, almost exactly like the one found at the house. And there's a demon on the loose. There's a demon on the loose. Someone who has access to the house who's mentally disturbed.
0: He said that in order to commit the crime in this case, you'd have to be evil, demonic. Something would have to be really, really wrong with you. Who do you think is more likely to be involved in this case? He asked, AJ or Josh? The prosecutors took turns with their closing arguments. Up first was prosecuting attorney Lester Blizzard. Blizzard began by holding up photos of Don and Antonio and saying that it's important that everybody remember why they're all there. He called them very fine people. And then he held up their autopsy photos and said, and this is what they've become. He said it's human nature to want to know the why, but that it's not something they have to prove in the case. He agreed that there was a substantial amount of time they spent trying to show the jury what the motives might be. Was it that the defendant was failing from his very high spot as the big man on campus? Was it his daily drug use or drug dealing? He pointed out that his grandma had said to the officer that night, well, if AJ did it, it's drug related. He said, maybe it's not being able to play ball at the private school. And he's upset about that. Maybe it's his constant lying and being called out for it by his parents. Maybe it was the massive trust fund that he would have access to. He said those were all submitted as ideas and suggestions of motive, but that they don't have to prove which one it was. He said you can't ignore that AJ initially lied about firing the gun in the week or two prior to the murders. He called it a practice shot and said he fired through his comforter and pillow in order to see how loud it would be and if it would wake his sister up. He then set a fire and put it out. Are we starting to see a theme here? He asked. Of things the defendant has admitted to? He then referenced how on AJ's iPad, there was that search for how to make a car bomb. His mind is working on this evil, he said. He told the jury that Josh's mental illness made for a great scapegoat. He said AJ is not above throwing his own siblings under the bus. When he started the fire, he blamed it on his sister. Is Josh capable of coming in and undermining and tricking a sophisticated burglar alarm system in the depths of his illness and conducting an execution? He asked. He told the jury not to fall for that and called AJ a master manipulator. Farheen Roach, another prosecutor on the team, then stood up to address the jury. She said that AJ was planning the murders and that the proof is in the phone and computer evidence. She said that two days prior to the murders, on the 26th, is when AJ tried to light the house on fire. His sister was out of town at that time. Then his parents took his phone away, and on the 27th, he searched for how to rig a car so that it explodes when it's turned on, on his iPad.
1: Okay, we all have crazy things in our phone, right? We watch forensic files. We're going to Google something. Does that mean that we're, does that mean if I Googled something crazy that I'm going to kill my parents? No, we are looking backwards at what was going on in this person's life. Okay, so try to light the house on fire, got my phone taken away. I'm on my iPad looking at this. And then at some point I'm shooting my father's gun through the floor of my bedroom and then covering up with socks.
0: She said she has seen no indication in any of the evidence, any of the text messages that Josh is mentally ill. On July 18th, she said, Josh and Keira were even texting about going to the movies.
1: I don't see any indication that Josh is mentally ill in any of the evidence that I've looked at. And the defense told you, That there'd be evidence for the past three years that Josh was mentally ill. We don't have that here. This is what we have. Where's that evidence that we were going to see? That Josh was having all these mental health problems, homicidal thoughts before the murder? Go look at the messages. Because it's communications. It's who this family was and what was going on.
0: She told the jury that contrary to what the defense said, AJ was not a happy individual on the day of the murders. She said he was grounded and couldn't drive his car. His girlfriend was out partying that night. And although they were texting, he wanted to be with her. He wanted to be anywhere else but home. She said AJ was also texting Josh that night. And that Josh told him, I can't let you take the Mustang. You drive so crazy and mom and dad said no. Does that sound like a protective older brother that's trying to do the right thing? Or does it sound like a homicidal guy that's about to go crazy and commit these murders? She asked. We have someone here whose freedom is restricted. He's failing out of school and losing focus. She said they didn't call family members to the stand because they don't have to. That the evidence speaks for itself. They didn't call Trenton. They didn't call Josh. She said Josh was having problems after the murders, but that she would be a little torn up too in that situation. Prosecutor John Brewer then closed it out for the prosecution. He said that A.J. was a master liar and brought up the lies he told in the interrogation with detectives. First, about not having touched his father's gun at all, and then about the fire.
4: And he doesn't have any problems Looking you in the eye, looking a police officer in the eye, looking his father in the eye, looking his mother in the eye and lying to them, looking his girlfriend in the eye and lying to her.
0: He said the motion detectors didn't pick up movement before midnight, showing that AJ never went and talked to his dad that night like he had told his girlfriend he had. He called it an elaborate deception. According to the phone records, AJ was on his phone doing a variety of things until 1:02 a.m. Then the activity stops, and seven minutes later, the upstairs motion detector senses motion. From 1:09 to 1:25, Don and Antonio are shot. The defendant doesn't call 911 right away. He called at 1:40 a.m. So what was he doing for 31 minutes, not calling 911? he said. He said the alarm had no problems whatsoever and that it was functioning perfectly that night. He also noted that A.J. said nothing about a masked man in the 911 call.
4: The Uncontested is if you were listening to the 911 call, what's uncontested is the defendant says nothing about a masked man. Not even when the operator's asking him what's going on. What's uncontested is in the 911 call, out of the defendant's own mouth, you will hear him say, it's all my fault. Out of the defendant's own mouth, you will hear him say how he can see the police from his closet. Another one of those scenarios that sounds good, but it's not true. You know the house as well as we know the house. You can't see police from inside your closet. It sounds good, but it's a lie. It's a manipulation.
0: He said they had found out that Antonio had only had the gun for two or three years, but that in his interview with police, AJ had initially said that he had fired that gun when he was eight years old. Now, why would he lie about that? He asked. To give himself credibility. He's smart, he said. He told the jury that Don was the first one who was killed. And that was unusual, given the fact that you would probably want to take out the former football player first, unless you have a reason for wanting her dead. This tells you why Don was killed instantly, he said holding up the stack of papers with the text messages transcribed. He brought up the fact that AJ never said, I did not kill my parents in the interview with police, that the closest he got was, I never would have tried to kill my parents. He said the Armstrong family members never mentioned being suspicious of Josh to the police, and that AJ's grandmother, Kay Winston, had actually immediately thought of AJ at the scene that she had immediately blurted out, if AJ did it, it's because of the drugs. How do you explain that? Except she knows, he asked.
4: She didn't know anything about the alarm. She she didn't know anything about how they were shot. She didn't know anything about the gun being Antonio Seniors. She didn't know anything about the note. She didn't know anything about the gun casings. She didn't know anything about the windows being closed. She didn't know anything about no forced entry. All she knows... Is when the police officer is trying to find out what happened, she immediately says, Let me tell you something. That's the way it was then.
0: He said the first time the defense mentioned Josh was at trial.
4: At no time did anybody from the Armstrong family ever go to the police and say, Josh. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen, first we've heard of it is you in here for you. Never went to the police.
0: He said AJ didn't explode. He planned and practiced it and lied about it.
4: The defendant's guilty, ladies and gentlemen. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. They didn't do it. He did it. That's your decision. You need, to, you need to tell him that you know the manipulation is over, the lying is over, you didn't fall for it.
0: The jury in the case deliberated for nearly 20 hours total, twice telling the judge that they were unable to reach a verdict, that they were hopelessly deadlocked. They asked to see numerous pieces of evidence, including the home security logs, text messages between AJ and his parents, And the note left at the scene. At one point, they even requested the trial transcript for the entire trial, which the judge said they couldn't get. They had to choose a particular witness's testimony that they wanted the transcript of. The judge even read aloud the Allen charge, which is an instruction to encourage the jury to continue deliberating until they reach a verdict. But they were unable to reach a verdict. Four jurors wanted to vote not guilty and eight for guilty. And so the judge declared a mistrial. District Attorney John Brewer has said they will retry the case, likely later this year. We appreciate the tremendous effort by the jury. Antonio Armstrong Jr. murdered two citizens of our county and we will continue to fight for justice and bring him to trial again. AJ's attorneys have said they will continue to fight to prove his innocence. Meanwhile, members of the Armstrong family are calling on the prosecution to drop the charges. AJ's grandfather, Don's father, released the following statement on Facebook. Quote, for those who don't know me, I am Keith Whiteley, the father of Don Whiteley Armstrong, And I am reaching out to the citizens of Houston, letting you know that the prosecution has wasted almost a half a million dollars of taxpayers' money on my grandson's trial and want to do a retrial, which will cost taxpayers another half a million dollars. They have no case, so you are taxpayers and have a voice, and your voice should be saying not guilty. Let's move on. The family has suffered enough. AJ is currently under house arrest waiting for his retrial. And that's all for today's episode. I'd love to hear what you think about this case. Do you believe AJ's story about a masked intruder? Or do you think he's guilty? What do you think about his brother, Josh? Did the defense create enough reasonable doubt? How would you have voted if you were a juror? Let me know by taking my polls in my Instagram stories at Court Junkie tweeting me at Pod or by emailing me at podcast at courtjunkie.com. As always, if you'd like to hear these episodes early and ad-free, you can do so by supporting me at courtjunkie.com slash support. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.